Well, let's continue adoring our great God this morning by opening our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And today we're going to look at another but God passage for those who are new or just visiting for something today for the first time or whether you're watching online for the first time. Uh, We are spending the summer investigating various but God passages. In fact, the one this week is going to show us how God again interrupts the division in the church. Last week we saw how he did that in the Corinthian church. He interrupted their division and their immaturity with this truth that he was the source of all their growth. We're going to see today that he's going to interrupt more of their division and more of their immaturity with this truth, that he is the designer of their unity. And Taylor was spot on. There is so much noise right now that we could unintentionally even begin to think wrongly about the unity of the church. So this morning, we're going to bring God's beautiful truth into this potential scenario for us as well. And we're going to find that it'll be exhilarating for our souls, I believe. Now, as you have your Bibles there at 1 Corinthians 12, one thing you'll see in this passage is that Paul, in some ways, kind of categorizes the division, uh, and I would even say their distortion of church unity, on two ends. He says on one end, there are those who say about the church's unity, and they distort it by saying this, that the, the church members don't need me. The other end of the spectrum are those who say, I don't need the members of the church. And God neither affirms or condones either of those extremes. By the way, those extremes, I think they're both forms of pride. I call the first one pitiful pride in that people kind of wallow in their self-pity. The other one I call peacock pride. Folks strut around in arrogance. But neither of these are healthy or biblical and neither are warranted and neither are or God condoned. In fact, he interrupts our thinking, our divisive, distorted thinking about his unity in the church with this singular verse. It's 1 Corinthians 12, 24 and 25. I'll have it on the screen. Read this with me, would you? Together. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Here's the beautiful truth that God is the designer of the established and declared unity in the church. So I want to go back to verse 12 and I want to walk us through. We're going to kind of take a short hike through about four paragraphs that expand this verse. And we're going to understand more about God's intentional variety and diversity within the church that we are a unified body. Now, this short hike looks like this. I'll show you kind of a map of it. Here's the four paragraphs we're going to investigate this morning. We'll mainly spend our time on the third one, but here's an overview of our hike that we're going to see that the first paragraph and the last paragraph are really book-ending paragraphs in which Paul declares about uh, the body of Christ as a unified yet diversified body. He declares this, and he, he, he then illustrates it With two simple analogies, they all center around the human body. So this is kind of a a map of our trek today. We're going to end up at a beautiful summit. We'll end up at a peak that I think, like I said, will just be exhilarating for your soul. So let's begin our hike, can we? 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Here's here's the passage in which our our main take-home verse is tucked in. 
The Bible would say this in the first paragraph, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So he's already alluding to this analogy he's going to be using. He says, We are one and yet many in Christ. Verse 13, For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. It's not hard to spot what Paul is after, is it? He uses the word one five times in these opening verses. He uses the word many two times. And so the nail that Paul is pounding is this. We are one body with many parts. We are unified yet diversified. That's the nail he's going to pound. And the hammer he's going to use to drive that nail is the metaphor or the analogy of the human body. Let's keep hiking. Paragraph 2 begins in verse 14. Follow with me. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. I love all the rhetorical questions Paul raises in this paragraph, all pointing to this fact that the variety in the body is intentional. And I think with this point, he's addressing the first extreme um, the first extreme way we distort unity. He's saying to those who say, you know what, the members of the church don't need me. He said, no, 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 no. <laughs> the variety's intended. We don't want uniformity or monotony. We want variety. In fact, variety is not just a good thing. Variety is a God thing. Do you see verse 18? God has arranged the members, and then he goes to this singular phrase, each one of them as he chose. So the variety that we see is God intended, God designed, God arranged. Now let's understand the context of this. The overall passage here, even before verse 12, is that of spiritual gifts. So my sense of the text, or my understanding of the overall ambiance is this. That as they were seeing the various spiritual gifts being used, some were thinking, well, my gift's not as visible as others. My gift's not as prominent or as known, and so I must not be needed by the church. I think visibility is one of the underlying motives here that drives this extreme distortion of unity. And Paul here is saying, you know what? There may be parts that are less visible. There may be gifts that aren't as seen, but they are still equally valuable, and they are intentionally given by God. So don't let visibility be your marker or your filter by which you judge someone's value or importance. That's what he's saying, because the variety is intended. It's not just a good thing. It's a what? It's a God thing. Now, we know that variety is good inherently. I think uh, no one would deny that. You look at creation. You see that the variety in creation, even down to snowflakes, all being individually, singularly different. You see various mountain ranges. You see the beautiful plains of the Midwest. You see the beaches on the coast. 
I mean, there's variety in, in God's creation. There's variety even in God's structures, such as the family. I mean, if you have more than one child, right now you're grinning because you're thinking, wow, I've got more than one child, and they are all so different, and they came from the same gene pool. I mean, you know it's true. You see the variety in your own family, and you see this variety in even your own life. I was talking this week with one of our families, and they're a farming kind of family, and they know so much about farming. I'm not a farming guy. I would not survive on a farm. I love farmers. I have a lot of farmer friends, but I'm a city guy. And I was telling them, I'm just a city guy. They said, yeah, we know that about you. And you know what we did? We embraced and rejoiced in our differences. We, we need their perspective. And they were saying, we need yours. And instead of criticizing that or bemoaning that, we rejoiced in our differences. And we valued uh, the variety. So, so understand something. What we know is inherently true in life, in creation, in our structures, in ourselves, is true in the church. And it's not accidental. It's arranged this way by God. Variety is a good thing, and it is a what? God thing. And it arrests this distortion that takes place, and we think, well, the members don't need me. No, don't let visibility be the, the filter or the factor. Know that God has created you and gifted you in this church for a specific reason. And visibility is not what makes that important or not. The third paragraph begins in verse 21. And here I believe he addresses the other extreme distortion of unity, which is that I don't need the members of the church. Let's read this next paragraph and spend a little time understanding it. Verse 21 says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, don't you love that phrase? And by the way, let's just pause here and notice that in verse 18, you see the word but. In verse 22, you have the phrase on the contrary. And then down in verse 24, you have the word but again. So Paul is continuing to interrupt their distortion of unity with biblical, godly truth. He says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. If the point of paragraph two was intentional variety, I think the point of paragraph three, which addresses the second of the distortions, is intentional value. In other words, there's not a single part of the body that's expendable. And I think this is brought out well to us in verse 22. Do you see what he says there? Look with me again. When Paul writes, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And again, it comes back to this visibility factor, perhaps, in which we, met, we have a false perception that, okay, they don't seem like they're as seen. It doesn't appear that they're as important. But Paul says, no, actually the opposite is true. You have a false perception if you think that way, that every part of the body matters. Church, listen, there are no expendable people in the body of Christ. Now, as we consider this analogy a little more, I want us to 
take some time to look at verse 23 because I think verse 23 really holds the key to understanding this paragraph. In fact, don't look at verse 24 as answering verse 23. You see the, ver- the, the words, but God in verse 24? You're looking at your Bibles? I think it answers verse 21. I think the but God of 24 is answering those who think they don't need the church. They have this peacock type of pride, right? They're strutting around. Verse 24 is saying, no, no, that's not how God designed the body. I think verse 23 actually gives us more of the, of the understanding of what it means for a body to care for each other and to have visible and invisible parts and how they work together for the good of the whole. So let me see if I explain it to you. I've really labored over this paragraph for a number of weeks. Our elders and I talked about it as well. Because there were times I would read this paragraph and I get to verse 23 and I would say, what does he mean by those? Have you ever thought that? Have you read verse 23 and like, what's he saying? Uh, you see the words like uh, less honorable parts and we give them greater honor? Like how does that happen in a body? Then you read about parts that are unpresentable and they get greater modesty. And so maybe you're like me, like I don't quite get that. Let me see if I can help explain that. Now, the Holy Spirit's really illumined my mind to it. I think it's helped me get this whole paragraph. So here's what's going on here. Remember, verse 24 is really an answer to verse 21. And verse 23 is an explanation of how the body works physically and spiritually. And he does it by showing us two words. Do you see the phrase, less honorable parts, and they receive greater honor? Do you see that? What he's saying there is this. There are parts of our body, when he says they're less honorable, what he's saying is that in our minds they are less appropriate to the sight. We might say they need a little help visibly. Uh, you know, there's just areas like they're, they're a little unsightly. Maybe we want to help them look a little better. So we give them greater honor. The word there is a word from the clothing industry. So it means, you know, we dress it up a little bit. I think that's humanly okay to say. There are parts of our body that, that we uh, clothe because maybe they're unsightly or maybe we just don't want everybody looking at them. I, I think of one example using the text, our feet. Like I, I know we can go barefoot, no sin in that. A lot of people do. Maybe not America, but people do, right? But most of you probably didn't come in here barefoot today. You put shoes on. Maybe it matches your outfit or maybe you are like me, you just have really ugly feet. Like I didn't really want you looking at my feet. I really wouldn't. I got, the older I get, my toes go crossing over. My feet are extremely wide already. I got massive foot issues. I'm planning for surgery, in fact, next year, hopefully, Lord willing, to correct some feet issues. So I like wearing shoes. They hurt a lot. I don't have good fitting shoes. But it's a whole lot better than going barefoot in front of you, trust me. So I give greater honor to less honorable parts. That's all he's saying. You put clothing on things that you want to present a little better. But then he mentions these unpresentable parts and how they get greater modesty. The word for unpresentable is actually the word for our reproductive organs. And I know we have a lot of families here, so I'm going to leave it at that. But he's speaking here of organs that actually we cover. And that's the word he uses. He says greater modesty is the word for covering. And so it's God's design that there is an appropriate covering there. But watch this. Those organs, and sometimes he's referencing reproductive organs or even the organs and the parts of our body that are used for the nurturing of newborns. He's saying here, if you think those are unessential the human race depends upon those parts are you with me so yes we do cover them appropriately rightfully modestly and we clothe other parts of our body that are perhaps needing help 
But none of that says those aren't essential. And here's the point of the paragraph. This is how the physical body works, and it's how you work with your physical body, and it's also how the spiritual body works. There aren't expendable parts. Actually, he says here, those are essential. Just like your body has parts that are essential, but you cover and you're modest about them, and other areas that are maybe not as pretty, you still clothe them. He says the church is the same way. We don't... Consider those as unnecessary. We actually need those. So church, hear the voice of your pastor. There are no expendable people in the body of Christ. Hallelujah for that truth. Amen. Now, I'm not sure who Paul had in mind here. If I were to try to be historical with the text, which we always start this way when teaching, you say, what did it mean to them? Because that will mean what it means to us. You can't make up a meaning from a text. So what did it mean to those to whom it was written? And I don't know who Paul had in mind here. Did he mean the physically handicapped? Socially less desirable? The mentally challenged? The less prominent? The spiritually weak? And he's thinking of somebody in their church that says, hey, uh, I'm not needed or I don't need you. And it's these people who distort unity. So who's he thinking of? We don't know. And the truth is, we, it doesn't really matter. Because Paul's point is, all people in God's family, they matter. You see, it's actually the, the vulnerable areas in this text that are considered the essential ones. I hope you're hearing this, church. It's the vulnerable ones who are considered the essential ones. And so here's, here's a point you seem to hear. We don't rid ourselves of weak, needy members. The sick, the hidden, the frail, the physically challenged, the marginalized. We don't consider them expendable. In fact, God uses those very ones to show us, listen, that the church is exactly that, a collection of weak, poor, hurting people of all types and all sorts. And so we are together as one, as verse 26 says, in both the good and the bad. We suffer together and we rejoice together. I love the way God uses upside down values, so to speak, don't you? He kind of turns this on its head. He flips the equation and says, you think it's all about how you look and how visible you present yourself. He said, man, I'm using those who really are hidden and covered. You may think they're unsightly, but that's exactly who I'm choosing in the church. And they're all necessary. Now, by the way, this is very fitting with how God has operated within this church and has operated throughout history. Stay with me about the book of Corinthians for a moment. Do you remember chapter 1? When Paul emphasized who God saves, verses 26 and 27, it was one of the messages in our But God series. God does not save the man-made, the rich, the powerful, the noble status. Remember that? If you think you've got everything necessary, that's not who God saves. God saves those who know they don't have any of that, and they need God. He says, that's not how, when or how you were called. You were called when you weren't powerful, when you weren't rich, when you weren't of noble status. And then how does God save? He saves through a message the the world considers weak and foolish. 
Church, catch this. What the world hears as ridiculous, the gospel, is exactly how God redeems and rescues people. And so when it comes to this passage and says, what's the church made up of? It's intentionally, divinely designed by God of people who the world thinks, man, you don't look real pretty. You don't seem to measure up. You don't match up. You're not impressive. God says, exactly, that's the church. My people that I purchased and every one of them matter. You see, church, hear this very well. The church is a continuing living display of God's upside-down kingdom and of his counterintuitive values. You are a walking testimony to that. If you're here this morning just kind of looking for a picture-perfect club, you've come to the wrong place. The church is not a, a club to join to ramp up your social credibility. It's not a group to identify with to give you more cultural cred. The church, it's a collection of saved sinners who showcase God's grace and mercy in lives once wrecked and ruined by sin. We are repentant people because we are broken people and we stand on grace alone and we give glory to God alone. We're not proud boasters who, who build our own platforms and make our own names famous. That's not the church. It's Christ's body and he has designed it intentionally with variety and value in every single member. This is so like God, isn't it? To use the very ones the world thinks don't count and to the ones the culture would discard and consider optional. I have news for you. God says you are essential. Just as your human body knows to give those physical parts that are less seen protective covering and necessary clothing, just as you know how to work with your body in that way, God's spiritual body knows too that every part of his body matters. And we should cover, protect, and care for all of them mutually. That was the word in the verse. Mutual care for one another. And this is how the paragraph ends and how we lead to the summit now, beginning in verse 27. So our hike is culminating. We're at the peak. And look what Paul says as we reach the summit of this beautiful section on the unity of the body of Christ and its intentional variety and unity. Look what he says in the beginning of verse 27. And this, this will astound you. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That's a declarative statement. But you realize what he's done, don't you? He's just come off two paragraphs correcting their extreme distortions. In other words, this is not like your picture-perfect club. You got folks saying, the members of the church don't need me. You got folks saying, I don't need members of the church. And to these people who are working through a number of issues from chapter 1 all the way through the end, they've just got issue after issue. Paul says definitively, hey, church, you're the body of Christ. Like, wow, does that not make your heart sing and rejoice? I mean, think about your own dysfunction. I'm thinking about mine. Think about our dysfunction. In the middle of every bit of that, here's what God is saying. You are the church. Wow. This is not a conditional clause. This doesn't hang on a, on a condition. It doesn't hinge to anything. It is a factual, doctrinal, supernatural statement that saved people are the body of Christ 
The word you there is, is plural, and yet he talks about individual members of it. So he's saying, in unity and yet your diversity, you are the church. Wow. I'm astounded by that. Because sometimes, I don't feel like the church. Do you? In those moments, we probably have a distorted view of the unity God has actually given us. Now, notice what he says in the rest of this paragraph, just briefly. He begins to list, really, the, the ways in which the variety shows up again. I'll read these to you. Verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Here's the spiritual gift context coming out. He uses the word first. Perhaps what he's doing here is saying this. And, and some believe this, that this may be a, a listing of the gifts in a sequential order of their appearance. That perhaps as God used them in the church, initially it came in this progression, possibly. He then says this in verse 29. He lists a number of other questions. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? What's the answer, church? Say it with me. No. It's the clear implied answer. So he's saying we're one, but yet we're many. And it's okay. No one's got all the gifts. So relax. There is a sense in which some gifts are more visible. Watch this. There's a sense in which some gifts have a wider base of impact, perhaps. But no gift has a wider base of value. So I love the way Paul here is so honest. Yes, we're the body of Christ, individuals you're members of. It's a fact. We experience that in ways that sometimes the gifts come in a sequence. They did as the church began. It could be mean that. Either way, the gifts have visibility. Some aren't as visible. Some have a wider impact. Some don't. But they're all of equal value, and they all matter. That's what he means by the phrase desire, earnestly, the higher gifts. He probably means they're the ones that, that have a more visible factor, maybe a wider impact, ones that affect the church more. It's okay to desire those. But it is not saying ever that those are more valuable. In fact, what he ends with is this simple phrase, I'll show you a more excellent way. And as the rest of chapter 13 unfolds, it's all about using whatever gifts God given you in love. So church, hear this. Paul is declaring that even amidst our own distortions of unity, it doesn't delete the unity. God has unified his church in Christ. That is a theologically accurate fact. And this is what he says here. We are a unified body. And we have a diversity of gifts and parts. And some have greater visibility than others, but none have greater value than others. And we all need each other. No one is expendable. So that's the, 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 uni, the, 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 the doctrine of the church's unity that we've got to stand on. Not perhaps a distorted version which says, nobody needs me or I don't need anybody. No, we need each other in all of our variety, in all of its unity, because that's the way God designed it. Now, when I read these four paragraphs, I'm, I'm really left, especially on this summit, and I was reviewing the peak with a clear understanding of what the church isn't and is. Here's what the church is not. The church is not 
a divisive club of individual competitors. We're not trying to outrank each other. We're not trying to outdo one another. We're not, you know, jockeying for position. The church is a unified body with mutual care. So even in our diversity, we're unified because the point is, and the result is, as this verse says, that we have mutual care for one another. And so the, the sense there is this, we give and we receive. And I've discovered something, and I'll say more in a minute about this, but just follow this train of thought. Could it be that when we only want to do one of those, when we only want to give or we only want to receive, we end up at one of these distorted ends? Could it be? That if we only want to receive care, we tend to end up thinking, nobody cares about me. If we only want to give care, then we end up thinking, I don't need anybody else. The, the, the words mutual care means you have to come into the church with a two-handed posture. That there are times I will give care, and there are times I'll receive care. And I think both are essential and in view here. That we're not a divisive club of individual competitors. We are a unified body with mutual care. And so church, you may ask yourself, why is that the case? And here's where I want to begin to land the plane. It's that way because that's the way God, watch this, verse 18, arranged it. Verse 24, that's the way God composed it. The word composed means blended together. In verse 28, that's the way God appointed it. Now, church, hear me with every ear you've got. You and I, we don't create the unity of the church. God has designed it, composed it, and arranged it that way already. We are a unified church. Where our problems come in is our experience of what is actually already true. Now, admittedly, that is another question altogether and deserves conversation. If your experience of that theological reality is poor, let's talk about it. We have shepherds and pastors and helpers and counselors who can walk you through that. But your experience or lack of it, for better or worse, does not negate or change or delete this fact. The church is a unified body with diversified gifts. It's because God made it this way. He composed it, arranged it, designed it. And so I, I just want to bring that truth to you with this realization. It may help drive out misperceptions and distortions about the church's unity and help you better realize, okay, so if this is the way God designed it, I want to start from there. And then let's begin to do what the biblical directive is. Let's work to maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. See, the Bible never calls for the church to create the unity. It's already been done by God in Christ. Hallelujah, church. Amen? He's done that for us. He's put us in one body, his sons. He does call us now to maintain that. And so let me give you, as I close, just four simple um, first steps. You say, Todd, how can you have four first steps? Well, some of you may say, I'm good with one, I'm good with two, but three is where I'm really, I'm really working on that. That may be your first step today. Some of you may say, no, well, number one is where I'm starting. Yeah, maybe four. In other words, all four of these could serve, uh, any one of them could serve as a first step for you. So let me just kind of bring to you as a close 
four maybe practical ways to begin to implement these four paragraphs. We're getting a view from the summit. Remember, we're at the peak now. We see this beautiful truth that God has designed it, owns it. He's composed it, arranged it. We are unified. How can I begin to live in that? Here's four first steps for you. Number one, refuse to compare or complain. If you read the bulk of the Corinthian epistle, you'll find that that talk was one of their consistent issues. Remember last week they were campaigning for celebrities? I would just encourage you to drop the tongue of criticism. And here, I don't necessarily mean in our church only. I just mean in the capital C church universally. And to be extremely transparent with you. I don't know that it, I hear a lot of it verbally, but man, I read so much of it digitally. that It just disheartens me sometimes to, to read so many, as they're called, maybe keyboard warriors, just uh, uh, complaining and criticizing, comparing. And here's, what, here's why it's so disheartening. Listen very carefully. Remember, you don't break principles. Principles break you. And Paul said in Galatians, do not be surprised when you nip and pick at one another that you don't eventually devour one another. There's only one end game to consistent criticism, cannibalism. So can I just instruct you pastorally, humbly, refuse to compare or complain? Yes, we all admit the church isn't perfect yet. (laughs) We know that better than anybody. You do too. But it is still God's body, and it is unified. Let's work to maintain that, not destroy that. Number two, commit to gathering as one. Now, I want to help you understand something here just for a few more minutes that I think is very instructive, especially in the time we're in. When we gather as a body in one place, it's not just so you can like check in like you're going to school. You know, your elders and your pastors aren't like, okay, they came today, check. We don't give out Sunday school pins. And I'm, I'm all for faithfulness, but let's just be frank. That's not why we gather We're not gathering to build up our cultural credibility, our social status. Why do we gather? Because in gathering, and the biblical instruction in 1 Corinthians 16 seems to be that the pattern was weekly. The day of the week wasn't quite as important as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, even though it started off on the first day of the week. But there does seem to be a weekly pattern and an admonition to doing that and to then giving in the same way. So as we do that, what's happening? We are symbolizing, watch this, we're symbolizing to one another that we're one. The gathering is all about the visible um, indication of our unity. We're saying you matter enough and he matters enough that I'll gather and display the unity that I know exists spiritually. It's a physical way to show that. That's why we're not the first to really struggle. Watch this church. We're not the first to struggle with how do we continue to be faithful to gathering when there seems to be lots of hurdles in our way. Would you admit that right now there are hurdles in the way of gathering? You could nod. Sure there are. And sometimes we think that we're in unprecedented times. I have news for you. We're not in unprecedented times. Now, we are in unknown times to us. I've never been in a pandemic. It's my first one, okay? But you realize that for generations, in fact, for centuries, in fact, let me just back the truck up. Since the first century... The church has always struggled to figure out how do we maintain a priority to our gathering 
when there are consistently hurdles in our way. And I might add to you, I think these are minimal hurdles compared to our forefathers and our Christians, our brothers and sisters who've gone before us. When they were having their houses plundered, when their lives were at stake, murder was the consequence of perhaps being found out in a gathering. And in this context, Paul would write in Hebrews. Perhaps Paul would write in Hebrews, right? Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So church, it matters that we gather. Now listen very carefully. That does not mean that those who are watching or listening now online or gathered in our youth room in a satellite location are less spiritual because there is appropriate caution to take. There's nothing wrong with that. Are you, are you tracking me? you follow me? But here's what I want to ask all of us to consider. Whether you're listening, watching, whether you're here present, all of us should ask this question in this current time. Has COVID become my cover for now living without commitment to God's values? That's the legitimate question every single person, whether you're, in, whether you're present or online or in a satellite location, should ask. And there's only one person that can answer that. It's the man or woman in the mirror. I can answer it for you. I don't want to answer it for you. I have to answer it for me, though. There are times I've been tempted towards laziness or a non-diligent pastoral effort or posture because, oh, I could just say, and I'm going to this COVID excuse. <laughs> and so I want to challenge all of us, appropriately, humbly, and yet boldly. Ask yourself this question. Is COVID becoming my cover for me actually living without a commitment to God's values? And if you find that that is what's happening, there's only one way out of that deathly trap. You've got to turn and face your fears. You've just got to face the monster and trust the Lord and begin to take measures and steps to overcoming those fears and prioritizing your actions. Again, it is right to be cautious. We've been saying this for months. We should be careful. And I noticed in our church, even I love the way that there's a variety of measures people are taking as God leads them as they keep the gathering a priority. I love that. We can have difference of opinions. We can have different measures. Those are all within realm of, of diversity. I love the fact that as we do that, we're saying we are committed to the gathering. We're committed to the body's health. So church, let's continue in that vein of being committed to displaying our unity physically, not letting COVID become a cover for actually adopting a non-committed lifestyle. Number three, quickly, serve with God's gifts. This is a great way to attack the demon of competition. When you see an opportunity, just jump in and help. You know, I, I've taught this for a couple of years now that I think one of the best ways to discover your spiritual gift is to act first, ask later. When you see a need, just meet it. And you'll be surprised how in the moment, God will begin to give you gifts to, to help the body. And in that moment, you'll find that your desire for competition will leave. You won't be worried about who sees you and who doesn't. You should be so thankful God's using you to solve a, a problem, meet a need. So serve with your gifts. Spot an opportunity and just jump in and help. And then lastly, connect to a group for spiritual growth and relational care. I'm going to revisit one thing I said, and then I'll land the plane for good. We talked about a two-handed posture in church, working best. Now, that's true when you come into the large symbolic gathering of our unity. But it's difficult in, a, in, a, in, a, in an auditorium in a church this size to really find individual or mutual care 
in an hour, an hour and a half. I admit that's a difficult thing. But you find that best in a smaller group. And what I've discovered is that the two-handed posture that works in church in general is especially helpful in a small group. You know, if you're in a small group and all you want to do is receive, man, it's wearisome to your small group, okay? (laughs) You can wear them out in a hurry. But if all you want to do is be the expert and the answer man, that's wearisome as well. What you need to come in with is a two-handed posture that, hey, there are times I'll be happy to serve and help. There are times I'm going to need some help. And that kind of humble, mutually caring position and posture, that complementarian posture, not competitive one, is really how groups function well. We have 40-some-odd of those groups. They'll be meeting this fall, some online, some in person. We'll handle that appropriately, carefully, and yet faithfully. I want to encourage you, don't run from the very environment in which you may find an opportunity to uh, delete your distortions of church unity and plant your feet more firmly on God's truth about his church's unity. Four first steps for you. Which one may be your first one's up to you and God. The Holy Spirit will nudge you. My, my goal and my prayer is this, that as you take one of these steps towards God's picture of unity, you'll leave behind your distortions of it. And we'll embrace the truth of these four paragraphs. That God is the designer, composer, and arranger of his church's unity and diversity. It is a declaration. It is truth. It's reality. Now let us live in that truth. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.